right, good afternoon. Thank you um, for coming to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. It's uh, my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Randy Holcomb. Um, Dr. Holcomb is a professor of medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's also the deputy director of the Tisch Cancer Institute at Mount Sinai and currently serves as the chief medical officer for cancer as well as the director of GI oncology at Mount Sinai. He has tremendous clinical expertise in GI cancers and um, has for a long time developed a, an impressive portfolio of basic and translational research centered around wet signaling for colon cancer. His most recent work, however, has really centered more upon um, healthcare delivery science. And I think on that note, um, he will share some of his current work in looking at factors influencing the delivery of quality oncology care. So um, please. Help me welcome Dr. Holcomb for his talk. Thank you. Sandra, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me here uh, today to give uh, grand rounds. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. I'm going to step a little bit away from that microphone because I'm buzzing. Um, I'm going to try to uh, go through. Uh, can you hear me in the back, by the way? Okay. Yeah. Go through uh, some of the um, uh, recent work we've been doing related to. Uh, delivery of uh, quality oncology care and uh, show you some of the results from some uh, studies that we've done. Uh, I won't take up the whole time here, so hopefully there'll be uh, plenty of time for questions. But if you have any pressing questions as we're going through, uh, shout it out and uh, we'll, uh, we'll address them uh, as, we, as we go on. Uh, this is my obligatory conflict of, uh, of interest slide, uh, of which I don't have any uh, for this uh, talk. And these are the learning objectives uh, for today's uh, session. So they are to identify some provider-level factors that impact on the quality of care, uh, patient-level factors, and then to understand some of the structures that promote uh, quality of care. And I'm actually going to come back to each of the uh, learning objectives uh, as we go through the talk. So um, just as an outline, um, I'm going to uh, start with a... Uh, uh, a survey that we did at Mount Sinai that uh, reviewed some of the perceptions of what quality care is from both the patient and provider standpoint. Talked a little bit about our uh, work with uh, implementing uh, an electronic platform to improve adherence to evidence-based care. And then talk about some uh, studies we've done related to uh, patient satisfaction. And then uh, end with some uh, uh, information about the structures of, uh, of care delivery and uh, uh, a uh, thought-promoting uh, ending about uh, polarity management. So to start with, uh, we, uh, we want to give quality oncology care. Everybody has that as a goal. But the, one of our questions was, what actually is quality? And what do patients think is quality? And what do providers think is quality? So we started this off by just doing a survey at our own institution. Uh, we surveyed our providers, both physicians, uh, advanced practice personnel, uh, nurses, and uh, oncology pharmacists, and we surveyed our patients uh, to try to get an idea about what they really felt was quality in the delivery of oncology care. So if we look at the, from a provider standpoint, we asked them many things about the, what was the best measure uh, of quality was. You can see over on the right some of the, uh, some of the choices that people had, and they ranked these from most important to, uh, to least important. And by far, the most important thing from a provider point of view uh, as a measure of quality 
was really what patient outcomes were. Uh, that's that's clearly uh, clearly a very important uh, goal to have good uh, patient outcomes. It's also incredibly difficult uh, to measure uh, for complex uh, oncology practice, but we'll get back to that a little bit later. We also asked providers what was the best measure of quality care delivery. This is a little bit different than uh, than. Uh, just what is quality. We're asking really about the delivery of care and uh, what was the best outcome measure to, uh, to follow. And, and again, patient outcomes or patient survival was, uh, uh, was the highest on the list, uh, but also quite high on the list was the use of uh, evidence-based uh, protocols. And so uh, we felt that, at least from a provider standpoint, uh, they, most providers felt that using evidence-based protocols was a good measure uh, that we were delivering uh, quality oncology care. There are many certifications that we have for oncology programs. Uh, we have several of those uh, at Mount Sinai. They include uh, uh, magnet nursing uh, certification. We participate in the Quality Oncology Practice Initiative through the American Society of Clinical Oncology. That's a chemotherapy, a medical oncology uh, uh, focused uh, quality uh, deli care delivery uh, program. We're a uh, accredited program through the American uh, College of Surgeons at uh, Commission on Cancer. Uh, we, uh, we ask all of our nurses to get Oncology Nursing Society certification. Uh, and we actually don't participate in the uh, LeapFrog uh, surveys. This is a, a national uh, survey group that looks at uh, safety primarily from an inpatient point of view. And if we asked our oncology providers what the best measures of uh, quality care delivery were, there were really uh, three that were grouped together. That was the magnet nursing, uh, the COPE program through uh, ASCO, and the uh, American College of Surgeons uh, Commission on Cancer uh, program. You can see that uh, over here, um, nobody thought that the LeapFrog uh, safety uh, <coughs> survey and certification was actually uh, a good measure of quality care uh, delivery. I think if you do poorly on that survey, it demonstrates that you don't have a safe delivery of care. That's bad. Uh, but uh, just providing safe care, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that you're providing quality care. And so, so there, is, there is a distinction that providers were making in their mind about uh, safety and uh, quality. We then asked our patients what were the most important factors for, the, uh, for quality of care. And by far, they thought that the most important was the expertise of the, of the physician. Uh, they also rated very highly uh, communication among providers. Oncology patients are very complicated. They tend to have medical doctors, surgical doctors, radiation doctors. Uh, they, uh, they have lots of transitions of care between inpatient and outpatient. They have transitions of care uh, between active therapy survivorship and end-of-life care. And it's during these transitions and across uh, different providers that we often have difficulties in uh, care coordination. And I think patients were reflecting that in their answer here, that they felt that communication was very important and uh, was a good measure of quality uh, of care, uh, because we often do, don't do such a great job in uh, care coordination, especially during those uh, transition points. We also asked patients if knowing a treatment center success rate for patients with a specific type or stage of disease would influence where they sought care. Um, and uh, almost everybody said that they strongly agreed or agreed with that. Again, this is an issue of outcomes. Patients are also interested in outcomes. 
Uh, and again, outcomes, uh, especially uh, in, in this sort of uh, area here, are quite difficult uh, to measure. Uh, and most uh, places don't actually uh, publish those specific outcomes. So really what, what we got from this study was that providers were interested in patient outcomes. They also thought that, that use of evidence-based protocols was a good measure of quality care delivery. And patients were very interested in the expertise of their physicians and care coordination issues such as communication, but were also issued in out, uh, interested in outcomes. Um, and I think that the, the bottom line from this is that while, while some things are, are the same between providers and patients, such as patient outcomes, other things are slightly different. And when you're thinking of, of designing studies to measure the quality of care, you really have to think about whether you're measuring it from a provider point of view or from a patient point of view. And I think those can be slightly different. So let's talk a little bit about evidence-based protocols. You heard that, that, that providers in our survey thought that that was uh, important. And I'm going to uh, relate to you some of the work we did when we implemented our Beacon system, the same system that, uh, that you have here, uh, and uh, uh, how that affected our adherence to evidence-based uh, protocols. <coughs> so we implemented electronic chemotherapy uh, ordering with Beacon. Uh, we hypothesized that this would improve our process metrics for chemotherapy administration and allow increased patient throughput, in other words, more efficiency. We felt that it would reduce variability in prescribing by providers, and we thought that was a key measure of uh, quality uh, care delivery, and we hoped that it would improve provider satisfaction. This is just uh, some graphs that, uh, that show you uh, uh, some information about uh, wait time and also our volumes uh, when we implemented uh, Beacon in our system. If you look at this over here, this is our total volume between our two main centers. We have a large uh, main infusion center and a smaller uh, breast center. You can see that, uh, that we, were, we were on, on the rise. We've actually been on a, about a 10 to 12% uh, growth uh, increase uh, annually for the last uh, five years. Um, actually, a little greater than that, but at least averaging about 10 to 12% uh, growth. And uh, when we implemented our, our Beacon system here, we continued pretty much along that, that, that growth curve, so we were able to maintain um, uh, our, our, our rate of growth. Uh, if you look, though, at uh, what happened to wait time from patient check-in to the first drug administration, uh, you can see that in our main infusion center, we had, we had a big increase in our, in our wait time uh, right after implementation of our electronic ordering system. This is because nobody knew how to use it. Uh, and it took us forever to try to get the orders into our, into our system. But you can see that after only two months, we were actually uh, back, down to, uh, back down to a baseline uh, level here. So we only had uh, inefficiency for about two months after implementation of, of Beacon, and we were very, uh, we were very happy with that. Uh, also, interestingly, if we go back to this curve, you can see that we did not cut our volume very much when we implemented Beacon. Uh, the, uh, Epic team had suggested that we cut our volumes by 50%, and we sort of looked at them and said, how are we supposed to do that? We have cancer patients that need treatment. And so we didn't cut our volumes, uh, but we worked very hard to try to uh, uh, make sure that our implementation went uh, seamlessly so that we could continue our volumes here. Uh, if we look to the uh, average uh, time uh, from uh, uh, check-in and infusion to, uh, to actually dispensing um, 
drugs uh, here in the uh, cancer center. You can see that over time, we're again, we're actually going down uh, over a long period of time, which means that we're becoming more and more efficient uh, over time, which again was one of our goals. We then wanted to look at how uh, our providers were actually delivering care and whether they were following evidence-based protocols. The important point here is that we developed our protocols into Beacon uh, by uh, reviewing them in a separate committee, which we call our chemotherapy committee, and we only approved evidence-based uh, protocols to be built into our Beacon system. So we did not build into our system protocols that physicians and, uh, were using to treat patients if they didn't have evidence in the literature. So if they wanted to use, if they wanted to keep treating patients the way they had been in a non-evidence-based fashion, they would have to change the protocols before the patients actually uh, received their, their first therapy. So we developed a metric uh, which we called uh, REBA, the Rate of Evidence-Based Adherence. This was uh, um, essentially one minus the number of uh, the ratio of chemotherapy modifications before the first cycle of chemotherapy uh, over the total, uh, total number of chemotherapy protocols uh, that were being ordered. And we were, we were anticipating that uh, we would uh, have a adherence of about 80%. This is based on prior studies, which have assumed that some patients do need uh, innovative treatment or need treatment modification because of uh, comorbidities, and that uh, the best uh, adherence you're going to get to following evidence-based protocols is somewhere around 80%. So that's what we were trying to look for to see if we were in that, uh, that range. And uh, what, we, what we did is we looked at each of our disease groups. We have subspecialized disease groups, as you do here. We have a breast group and a GI group and a GU group, a uh, head and neck group. Uh, we actually had 13 different, uh, 13 different uh, distinct uh, treatment groups uh, in uh, medical oncology and hematology. You can see that some of them are, are exceedingly uh, busy, um, uh, providing, uh, ordering lots of uh, beacon treatment plans. Uh, one group is uh, distinctly not busy over here, only ordering 11 during the time period that we, that we looked at. And uh, we calculated uh, the, uh, the, the REBA. Uh, we had one group that uh, always followed evidence-based protocols, another that only did it half the time. But overall, uh, we had a, a, a rate of adherence of about 86%. So we were, we were pretty happy with the overall rate, uh, but we were not so happy with these groups down here um, at the bottom because uh, they seem to be modifying protocols before patients ever got uh, chemotherapy and this suggested <coughs> that they were not following evidence-based uh, guidelines. Now, uh, what we did, uh, and I don't have the data on this slide, is we, uh, we released all this information to our entire practice group. We identified which uh, disease group uh, were one through, uh, one through 13. Uh, of course, the, the people up at the top, up here, uh, in these disease groups, they were exceedingly happy uh, that they came out on a list that made them, them look very good. Um, the, the people down here said there were extenuating circumstances as to why their, their uh, numbers were so low. And of course, they were providing evidence-based care, but there were other reasons why this happened. But if, when we looked at a follow-up about, uh, about three months later after we started releasing this on a monthly basis, we found that the, the lowest rate we had was about uh, 80%. So all of these people down here below 80% somehow modified their practice uh, over the, net, the ensuing three months and were suddenly uh, following evidence-based protocols uh, more routinely. So we felt that that was a good quality improvement uh, metric. 
Um, what we also wanted to look at was provider satisfaction. Uh, physicians hate change. They hate implementation of new electronic systems. It slows us down, uh, and it makes, we feel that it makes more work for us. So we wanted to ask them what they thought about the Beacon system. And interestingly, um, even after one month, 72% uh, felt either agreed or strongly agreed that Epic was making them more efficient. And we thought that was really pretty remarkable, that even in a, after one month uh, that, that we, we achieved that, uh, that rate of efficiency. If we asked them about the quality of patient care, which is the topic of today's talk, and whether that improved, you could see that even after one month, uh, and then at four, it was maintained at four and eight months, uh, that about three-quarters of the uh, providers felt that the electronic <coughs> system actually helped them improve the quality uh, of care that they were um, delivering. And uh, overall satisfaction, you can see down here, um, after a month, overall satisfaction was not fantastic, but after eight months, uh, about three-quarters of the physicians really were, were very satisfied with the system. So I think that this not only made us a little more efficient, made providers happy, but it also appears to, at least in the provider's mind, improve the quality of care. And I think I've said everything uh, on this slide, so I'll go off. So um, now I'm going to move on to some patient-level factors. I want to show you some of the results of some work uh, we've done looking at, uh, uh, at uh, some uh, structural factors and demographic factors that affect uh, patient satisfaction scores. And uh, uh, the reason that we're looking at this is because patient satisfaction, whether we agree with it or not, is being looked at as a measure of quality. And um, uh, of course, the uh, hospital value-based purchasing uh, incentives um, uh, uh, look at the HCAPs, or healthcare provider and systems uh, surveys uh, from, the, uh, from inpatient uh, sites, and a significant amount of reimbursement is tied to scoring well on these uh, HCAP scores. Our initial hypothesis was that patient satisfaction scores would vary with population density. I'm from Manhattan, or at least I work in Manhattan, and it's a, it's a very a dense uh, population there, and uh, so we always feel like our patient satisfaction scores are not going to be as good because of, of where we practice. Um, and uh, to, to support this, if you look at states, this is state-by-state state HCAP scores uh, and population density, you can see that there is some relationship here that the, that the scores are better in, uh, uh, in sparsely populated states compared to densely populated states. So our thought was when we looked at individual hospitals that, that our scores would actually vary with population density. You'll see that we weren't exactly correct. But that was our hypothesis in starting the study. So we obtained patient satisfaction scores from the National Hospital Compare Database. Uh, we got scores for over 95% of, uh, of the US hospitals. We actually uh, reviewed the scores, uh, fortunately, with uh, various electronic means uh, of nearly a million uh, surveys. Uh, we also obtained information on uh, um, the number of beds that each of these hospitals had. And, uh, and, uh, we, and the county that they were in and obtained population um, information uh, on uh, 3,000 U.S. counties from the U.S. Uh, census data. We put this all together. We did a lot of multivariate regression uh, modeling. Uh, we uh, uh, identified the uh, standardized partial regression coefficients or beta that we 
uh, from the multi, multivariate regression so that we could look at the strength of uh, postulated predictors. And then we, as I'll show you in a minute, we actually developed a predictive formula based on the four strongest uh, uh, predictors and then made some adjustments to our predicted uh, formula. So just to go back for a second, if you look at the overall patient satisfaction uh, by, uh, by population uh, density, you can see in each of these graphs, these are each, e each of these are different topics on the HCAPS uh, survey. Overall positive score, uh, a score for nurse communication, doctor communication, uh, whether the center is clean and quiet, et cetera. And for each of these, the, the darker gray uh, is a higher population density and the lighter gray is a lower population density. And you can see that almost all the scores are, are worse when there's a higher population density. So if we, if we looked at this just on univariate analysis, our hypothesis was correct. Higher population density, worse scores. Uh, but when we looked at uh, our multivariate analysis, population density actually fell out of the, out of the model, uh, interestingly. And there were, there were four other uh, factors which were, um, uh, which were the strongest predictors uh, for HCAP scores. Uh, education, so this is a, a post-high school uh, education level, and uh, white uh, race uh, actually predicted favorable HCAP scores. Uh, hospital size, this meaning large hospital size, so the number of beds, and primary language being non-English speaking, most strongly predicted unfavorable HCAP scores. This is the table just, uh, just showing that uh, here. Oops, let me go back. Um, uh, with the, uh, you can see the beta coefficient uh, is bolded here. Uh, these were the, the, the two that had the strongest predictors for favorable scores and the two that had the strongest, were the strongest predictors for unfavorable scores. Now we use that information and we developed a predicted patient satisfaction formula. Uh, this was using uh, the uh, uh, unstandardized uh, beta coefficient uh, for hospital beds, non-English speakers, education, and uh, white race uh, only, and, and this would actually develop a score here. So essentially what this means is if, if you identified a hospital and you knew the number of beds, you could uh, determine uh, the proportion of non-English speakers, what the education uh, level was for the, uh, for the county that they serviced, uh, how many were, uh, were of right, white race, you could actually predict what the overall patient satisfaction scores would be without actually doing any surveys. That's what this model says. It says you don't have to do all the surveys. All you need to know are those four factors, and you could actually uh, fairly reliably predict what the patient satisfaction scores were. Of course, that would put a lot of people out of business that run all these survey companies, and they wouldn't like that. So, so we did a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, more manipulation with this, and we developed something we call the WIPS, which is over to the right here, which is a weighted a predicted patient satisfaction score. And we modified the, uh, the predicted score um, by trying to remove the bias from those four specific factors uh, that were demographic or structural with, uh, within a hospital that seemed to strongly influence patient uh, satisfaction scores. And then we went one more step and we took the, uh, this uh, uh, WIPS here and we put it in an equation where we use the reported patient satisfaction score. 
And this was now a, the patient satisfaction score for the USA overall, minus uh, a fraction of the, uh, of the WIP score that we developed for an individual hospital. And this, develops, this gave us another score called the WIPSAS, which essentially is a patient satisfaction based on the uh, taking out the bias from the structural and demographic uh, factors. And if we looked at the, uh, uh, at, we use this uh, WIPSAS uh, to rate hospitals in New York State. Now here you can see are listed the top ranked hospitals in New York State by HCAPS, um, by uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And there's a lot of manipulation here. You're all sitting in the room and you're saying, okay, you took some scores, you manipulated them, you manipulated them again, so why is that valid? But actually, the scores that get reported by CMS are already manipulated. They're manipulated for area of the country. They're manipulated by whether the scores go out by, by paper or they're electronic. I mean, CMS does lots of manipulation of their scores before they actually even publish them. But we think they don't do quite enough manipulation because there are these other factors that actually uh, are important as well. But if you look at the top 10 ranked uh, hospitals, you can see that we have River Hospital, Westfield, Clifton, not the hospital for special services, that's a pretty big hospital, but Delaware, Putnam, Margaretville, I don't even know where half these places are in New York. But the, uh, these are all tiny hospitals. They're all small hospitals. They tend to be rural hospitals. They're in places where almost everybody is white. That's, that's how the ranking is in New York State. If you actually look at our WIPSAS scores, with our, with our modification here. Interestingly, River Hospital still does really well. So, you know, maybe they do a really good job for patient satisfaction. Uh, Westfield does well, Clifton does well. But suddenly on this list now appear three academic medical centers, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Montefiore Hospital, a medical center which is in the Bronx, and Mount Sinai Hospital, which just barely made the list, which was nice, of the top 10. Um, these are academic medical centers in very uh, population-dense uh, centers uh, in New York City, and uh, they're, they're very large. They have a huge number of beds. And so if you look at this adjustment, uh, I think that you could see that academic medical centers are probably being somewhat disadvantaged by the way that the scores are currently re uh, reported uh, by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, and that if you make these, uh, these additional adjustments, they actually score a little bit better on patient satisfaction. Now, some people would say, well, why should, why should they get ranked higher? Because they're scoring poorly on patient satisfaction. But if there are struck, they may be doing a good job in taking care of patients and providing a good patient experience, but there are some of these other factors uh, that, uh, that influence their scores and make their scores actually lower. That's at least our hypothesis. So uh, we made some adjusted scores. Uh, when, when, we, when we did that, we saw that some of these large urban uh, hospitals had been, uh, we feel, negatively impacted in a disproportionate way by some demographic uh, factors, and that uh, uh, CMS might want to consider some additional adjustments beyond what they're already doing uh, in reporting their uh, patient satisfaction scores, especially since they tie these scores uh, to, uh, directly to uh, reimbursement to these hospitals. So I'm going to move. Uh, uh, to another topic uh, related to patient-level factors that influence the perceptions of quality health care and talk about uh, provider communication. You saw that on some of the uh, HCAP scores, provider 
uh, communication, uh, communication with nurses and doctors was part of the uh, HCAPS uh, surveys. So we did a similar uh, study looking at the hospital compared database. We co collected some of the same information that we collected for the, uh, for the prior uh, study. And the reason we are looking at this is because improving patient satisfaction uh, is, is a key goal for, for hospitals and communication between nurses and doctors is a key factor that, uh, that will modify many of the other uh, questions on those HCAP surveys. So whether you recommend the hospital, which is one of the questions, uh, what your overall satisfaction is uh, with, the, with your hospital stay is one of the questions. Those are clearly going to be influenced by the communication that happens between nurses and doctors uh, in the hospital. So uh, we, looked at, uh, we looked at some of the um, factors here. You can see that physician communication, the one that was, uh, that, uh, uh, was the highest uh, predictor of uh, a high score on the physician communication domain was percent with a bachelor's degree. Uh, the, the strongest predictor uh, for a poor score on physician communication was percent non-English speaking. If we looked at nurse communication, uh, the, uh, the high, highest predictor of a strong score was being a white race, and the, uh, the strongest predictor for a poor score was uh, number of hospital beds. So this is sort of common sense. If we go back here, uh, educated, highly educated white people, we did a pretty good job communicating with them. People who didn't speak English in large hospitals, we didn't do such a good job with communication. And I think what this, uh, what this study really shows is that, especially for large hospitals, uh, there probably needs to be an increased focus on those individuals that are less educated and non-English speaking in order to improve our communication. We want to improve our communication scores, and of course the ultimate goal is not just to improve scores, but actually to improve the patient experience for those individuals. <clears throat> So, but the scores are a reflection of what their experience is. So, uh, so I think that, uh, that this just highlights that we really need to do a better job for non-English speaking patients. And uh, it appears that uh, in large hospitals, we do a particularly uh, poor job at communication, especially nurse communication. And this is an area that large hospitals uh, need to focus on uh, specifically in order to improve their patient satisfaction scores and the patient experience. So I want to spend now just a, just a few minutes now that we've gone through some provider level uh, factors and some patient level factors and understand some of the structures that can promote quality care delivery. And I'm going to give as an example uh, some of the things that we've done at, uh, at Mount Sinai in our ambulatory oncology program uh, in order to uh, help to uh, uh, improve our patient experience and improve the quality of care uh, that we're delivering. And we've developed a model there, which is uh, a truly multidisciplinary model. We call it PACES, our patient-centric coordinated care with embedded services. Um, as with most of these uh, patient-centered models, we put the patient in the middle, in the center. Um, but really what, what we've done here is we've built on a foundation of multidisciplinary care with medical oncology, surgical oncology, and radiation oncology. And we've been able to co-locate co all of these disciplines in the same practice structure so that the medical oncologists are practicing next to the surgical oncologists and radiation oncologists in a disease-specific way. This is a model that's been in place in breast centers for many years, uh, and they, breast centers know that this works well. 
uh, and that it, uh, it provides a great patient experience. It allows for patients to come in uh, to a single visit and see multiple uh, physicians, but it's rarely done in outside of, uh, of a breast center or a women's center uh, most of the time. So we've done this in our larger um, uh, practice area. We've divided off the sections of our, of our uh, center so that we have a GI area, we have a GU area, uh, we have a hemolignancies area. We've tried to focus our, our uh, practitioners so that they can practice uh, side by side. In addition to that, and I think what's, what's really made this uh, uh, more novel, is that we've embedded uh, support services within our practice. So we've added a supportive oncology uh, uh, program, that's a palliative care program. Uh, they aren't practicing in a separate location, they practice exactly where we practice. Usually in the room next to mine, I have a palliative care physician uh, practicing the same time that I'm there. This allows those individuals to be part of the care team and really provides a different perception for patients and often allows the early incorporation of uh, palliative care uh, services uh, for patients early in their treatment course rather than late in their, in their treatment course, which I, we think has been a real benefit. Uh, we hired a psychiatrist who specifically focused on, uh, on cancer patients. The psychiatrist practices within our center. Not in, an, not in another center with the other, with the other psychiatrists. We also found that psychiatrists, when we tried to refer patients to psychiatrists, they didn't really know what cancer patients were going through, and we really needed someone who was specialized uh, in that area. Uh, we hired a cardiologist. Well, we didn't. The cardiologist hired a cardiologist. But they hired a cardiologist who was specifically focused on oncology uh, uh, issues, and we embedded that oncologist within our, within our practice. And uh, she practices uh, in our center two days a week, does all her echoes uh, in, our, in our center, and sees patients uh, who, are, who are undergoing uh, cancer treatment. Um, and we, more, more recently, we hired two oncogeneralists. Our center sits on the edge between the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is one of the wealthiest uh, areas of the country, and East Harlem, which is one of the poorest areas of the country. And we also have a lot of patients from Central Harlem. We found that, especially for our patients from Central and East Harlem, that at least 50% of them did not have adequate primary care support. Part of the reason is because there are a lot of uh, uh, undocumented immigrants, in, uh, especially in, in East Harlem. Uh, it's a difficult practice uh, environment. We have a workforce shortage for uh, minority physicians. Um, and for all of those reasons, there just aren't enough primary care physicians in East Harlem and Central Harlem. Uh, for our patients. So we found that many of them did not have good primary care support, so we hired two primary care doctors and we embedded them within our practice. They see only cancer patients, um, and they, they see them while they're on active treatment, and they're also involved in our post-active treatment survivorship uh, program to provide ongoing care uh, for these uh, patients. So, uh, so that's another, another uh, physician-based subspecialty that we've embedded into our practice. And then we have other non-physician-based services that are also embedded, including a financial counselor, because many of our patients uh, have significant financial toxicity uh, related to their, uh, to their cancer care. So we have a financial counselor on site to meet with them. Of course, nutrition services, social services, and oncology nursing. Most programs uh, would already provide those, uh, but uh, we didn't want to exclude them. They're an important component of our uh, team. Now, around in the middle here is something called a PCC, 
which is our proactive uh, uh, care coordinator who is supposed to work with each patient and integrate all of these different disciplines. I'll have to be honest with you. We've integrated all of these disciplines into our practice, but we've not yet figured out the best model for our proactive care coordination. We, we're not really sure if this should be a, uh, a nurse coordinator, it should be a social work coordinator, or it should be a team so that patients are triaged uh, to, different, to people with different areas of expertise to provide the optimal uh, care coordination. Presumably, we could hire nurse coordinators to do this for everybody, uh, but it, would, it might bankrupt our center uh, because nurses are pretty expensive. Um, and so, so our thought is that, that, that we may be able to triage patients, uh, as is done in some other disciplines, uh, between uh, the uh, clinically-oriented nurse coordinators and uh, non-clinical uh, non personnel as well. So, uh, so we've tried to change our care delivery. This has uh, uh, required a, uh, a change in culture uh, within our center, but it's been uh, uh, adopted and accepted uh, uh, with enthusiasm by most of our uh, physicians. And of course, we'd like to improve some, uh, some metrics associated with quality care delivery. And so I'm going to share with you just some from our uh, supportive oncology program, which has now been in effect for about three years at Mount Sinai as an embedded service within our oncology program. You can see that, uh, that uh, on the left here that most of the time patients were referred to supportive oncology for symptom management, not for goals of care uh, discussion or for hospice referral. So palliative care physicians are becoming involved in the care of our patients to help with pain management, to help with intractable nausea and vomiting and other symptoms that, uh, that they may have. Often those patients that are being followed for symptom management later are being uh, uh, goals of care issues and hospice issues are being addressed by the palliative care physicians because the patients consider them part of their treatment team, not as, uh, not as uh, just someone else that they're being sent to uh, when, when the time comes for hospice discussion. We also have developed, uh, and this is a newer, a trigger program so that we're identifying patients who we feel will benefit early on from palliative care uh, involvement. So patients with stage four lung cancer and patients with unresectable pancreatic cancer are now being referred directly to, uh, to palliative care as a, as, a, as a trigger, even if they don't need to be seen for symptom uh, management at that time or for uh, goals of care or hospice uh, type uh, discussions. So those, those individuals get involved now with palliative care, probably even before the palliative care physician is needed but they're there then as a resource for those patients uh, as time goes on. What we did look at is uh, emergency room visits and uh, unplanned admissions uh, before and after uh, uh, implementation of our supportive oncology uh, program. And you can see that we had a significant reduction in uh, an emergency department uh, visits for those patients being followed on the su with uh, supportive care, uh, supportive oncology services, a slight decrease in inpatient admissions, and we're still tracking this data uh, to see how this, uh, how this goes over time. And we anticipate that we'll continue to see that and uh, eventually that'll become a significant reduction as well. So we've gone over some, uh, some uh, surveys we did of uh, providers and of patients. Uh, I've talked a little bit about uh, provider level factors, patient level factors, and some about the structure of oncology care delivery. And I just wanted to finish with talking uh, about a different way to think about uh, quality, and that's uh, to think of it in a polarity management uh, perspective. This is a, um, 
uh, a construct that was developed uh, by, uh, by Barry Johnson uh, looking at uh, interdependent but opposing uh, values or points of view for a problem and trying to analyze the problem by, by uh, looking at the different points of view and optimizing the positive attributes of each perspective while minimizing the negative attributes. And so to show you what that means in, uh, in oncology, there's a lot of debate about uh, moving toward a standardized model, which you can see over on the left in the green uh, circle, uh, for oncology care uh, delivery. Uh, this includes the uh, uh, use of best practices, implementation of clinical um, pathways. And there, there are lots of benefits to a standardized approach. Uh, you, you have predictable outcomes, you have predictable costs, but there's some disadvantages as well because there's a uh, there's limited number of options for individual patients, and this doesn't work very well in settings of limited effectiveness. So if we have a patient with pancreatic cancer where we have very limited um, and ineffective uh, treatments, a standardized approach is not always the best approach uh, for those patients. Though it may work very well in the, treat in the adjuvant treatment of a patient with <coughs> breast cancer or colon cancer. Opposing the standardized effects are the, are, uh, is innovation. We always like to have innovation in oncology, uh, as evidenced by the number of new drugs that get approved uh, every year. There are lots of new treatment uh, options uh, available to patients. Uh, when you have innovative options, uh, including such things as uh, 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 genomic-based uh, therapies, you have the potential to personalize therapy, uh, and there's, a, there's a really a great potential for patients who have, uh, who have diseases where, where standard therapies are of limited effectiveness. The difficulty with the innovation approach is that the cost may, may run out of control. It's very hard to control costs when you're doing things that are innovative and not standardized. You're not really certain of what the outcomes are. Many of these patients may be on innovative uh, clinical trials. We're trying to test what the outcomes are, but we don't, we don't know those um, up front. And there tends to be a lot of intra-practice uh, variation when, you, when there's a lot of innovation as opposed to standardization. And of course, we're always worried about how much reimbursement we're going to get from, uh, from insurers. And uh, if you're doing things with lots of variability, insurers are very wary about uh, 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 about contracting with you, and they're much more comfortable uh, when, you're, when you're providing a standardized approach. So really what, what we want to do is we want to use the best elements of, of standardized care as well as the best uh, elements of innovative care so that we can, we can uh, predict our costs, try to predict our outcomes, and also uh, provide the most options for patients and personalize whenever possible uh, for our patients. And if we can do that, we're going to get the highest quality care. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave with that, and um, I'd be happy to answer any questions. First, uh, Randy, let me thank you for your uh, talk. That was a great overview of you know issues that every academic medical center, including ours, including ours, is struggling with. Um, I wondered if I could put you on the spot for a second, and that is, um, I saw um, in your bibliography or background, kind of that in your role as CMO at Sinai, that you, know, that you were involved in physician compensation policy. That's something that we're um, involved in um, as well, and in fact, we're coming down the home stretch on a new model, which, like you know, 
98% of our peers has clinical activity and RVUs um, um, as a cornerstone, but was designed in a way that moving for forward, there's a pathway to explicitly connect physician compensation, either at the small group level or at the individual levels, to other measures of value, quality, safety, experience. Um, could you talk a little bit about sort of your experience at Sinai and, you know, in your own personal approach to, um, you know, thoughts about how you connect measures of value in oncology to compensation? Sure. I, I think that's a that's a question that uh, most centers are struggling with. Um, I mean, I think uh, I think uh, everyone will agree that. Uh, uh, Providers should be appropriately reimbursed, and there's going to be a disagreement exactly as to uh, how much they should get reimbursed. Um, I think that um, uh, the uh, there are many different ways to measure someone's uh, uh, productivity, and I think uh, uh, work RVUs is, is definitely a, a valid measure of, uh, of productivity uh, for uh, for clinical care, and is a reasonable. Uh, measure uh, for clinically oriented uh, physicians uh, to use as a uh, measure of productivity and a measure for for uh, for reimbursement or for um, incentivization. Uh, I think in an academic center, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that that you do not only reimburse based on uh, clinical metrics such as the work RVU, because what that does is it disincentivizes physicians. From doing the academic activities that are that are really the core of an academic uh, um, medical center's uh, existence, so it's it's very important to be able to use other metrics uh, and to incentivize uh, providers uh, using those other metrics. Um, you can do that uh, at a group level uh, related to uh, clinical research activities. Uh, you cannot do it on an individual level necessarily for clinical research. You don't want to incentivize someone and pay them more because they put someone on a clinical trial that will uh, appear as coercion. And I think the IRB would have some issues uh, uh, with that. Uh, but you can do that as a, as a, uh, at, a group, at a group level, at a disease-focused level, or at a divisional or departmental level, uh, looking at uh, targets uh, for clinical trial uh, enrollment uh, and, uh, and incentivizing uh, groups of physicians uh, that uh, that beat those targets. So I think that that's that's one way to do it. I think that uh, people have not quite figured out um, uh, exactly how to incentivize uh, providers based on uh, quality uh, metrics, and I think that's going to be exceedingly important uh, moving forward. Um, the difficulties are that uh, when you look at um, uh, the quality metrics are often process measures that we measure and not not so much outcome measures. And process measures are very dependent on factors that are often outside of the practitioner's control. So they have to do with how the, how the uh, practice is set up, how the registration staff uh, communicates with patients, how efficient they are, have to do with wait times uh, in, the, in, uh, in the lobby. Um, these are things that the providers may have some control about, but often little control about. So, uh, so process measures like that are probably not the best ones to incentivize uh, physicians. Some, some groups are incentivizing physicians based on their, um, whether they meet their uh, 
adherence to uh, evidence-based protocols or clinical pathways. I think you can do that as long as you have a recognition uh, that in oncology, uh, you're, you're never going to hit 100% of uh, adherence uh, to this, and you probably should never hit 100% uh, adherence. I think when you look at the value question, so the value is not only the, the quality and the outcomes, but also the cost uh, uh, that you're, uh, uh, the cost of delivery of care. Again, it's difficult on a provider level to incentivize patients based on value because a lot of those issues related to cost are outside of the uh, physician's uh, direct control. But I think at a group level, you can, you can do that because I think as a, as a group, you can look at the, at the cost of a, of a cohort of, uh, of patients and look at the uh, practice characteristics and as to whether they are uh, providing um, uh, the best quality care at the lowest uh, cost. And so I think you can devise some reimbursement schemes for that as well. I think the other thing that, that physicians don't, don't like to hear is that the, the, the most effective uh, incentivization plans are ones that also include a disincentive. And so uh, if, there, if there is some uh, component of uh, reimbursement that's, uh, that's at risk, um, uh, that, that often provides uh, added incentive uh, for those physicians uh, to actually uh, achieve the uh, appropriate uh, benchmarks. So we haven't done that at Sinai. We don't really have a, a disincentive component uh, uh, to, to what we, uh, how we uh, help to uh, compensate our physicians. We did do that when I was at the University of California in, uh, in Irvine. Everybody was very upset about it and very nervous about it. Um, but uh, actually, we, it was very uh, rare that we actually had to invoke a, a disincentive uh, sort of clause uh, in, uh, for an individual uh, practitioner. And um, everybody ended up better on the plan than, uh, than, uh, than they would have without the plan. So, so I think you can do it, and I think you can do it in a fair way. I think that uh, an academic medical center cannot just base uh, um, uh, incentives on, uh, on work RVUs because it will, it will disincentivize uh, physicians from doing those academic things. Yeah. In your PACES model, which I think is fabulous, by the way, yes. uh, as it pertains to the three uh, treatment modalities in that model, what infrastructure, leadership infrastructure is in place uh, at Mount Sinai to both endorse and hold accountable uh, to that model as it pertains to those treatment modalities that need to work together? So I think that's a key question. I'm sorry for moving over here, but the sun was like, oh. I, I couldn't actually see who you were. So, sorry. Um, uh, you know, um, making change management is difficult, and you need you need excellent leadership, or it will not be successful. This was a change in our practice, so I consider this a, a something that where change had to be managed. People had to understand what the uh, what the change was to get on board with that, and um, uh, we've had we've had exceptional leadership in in all of these disciplines, in medical oncology, radiation oncology, and what I would say are the four different uh, surgical oncology uh, groups that practice uh, within, our, uh, within our center um, uh, to really uh, uh, endorse this, uh, this program and uh, enthusiastically uh, support it and support it with all of their uh, faculty uh, moving forward. 
So uh, we've 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 had uh, we've had good leadership. I think the leadership is uh, is essential. We've done that through the sort of departmental uh, structure. Um, I'm I'm the medical director of the uh, of the unit, so uh, I'm I'm always walking around in everybody's face, uh, uh, telling them how how great we're doing if we uh, you know if we adhere to this uh, model and how well our patient satisfaction scores are, uh, and uh, I, that really has gotten people very enthused. Uh, about uh, moving this forward, but I think they wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have adopted the uh, um, the plan as readily uh, if they didn't have their uh, departmental leadership uh, on board with it as well. So we made sure that that, that all the leaders were uh, were going to um, enthusiastically endorse uh, this uh, before we uh, before we move forward, and uh, we've had a good group of leaders, so we're able to do that. Thank you. Uh, over here. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, good to see you again. Uh, comment and a question. My comment is on the, um, the WIPSAS that, that, that you uh, uh, yes. built. I think that's a great model, and it was nice to see um, Monopure make the list because that's where I trained. Yes, excellent. So, uh, my question is you mentioned um, that uh, for providers, outcome, patient outcome is you know, the key measure of quality. I was at ASCO, and I brought this to the attention of our leadership here. Um, uh, it has to do with, my question is, uh, cancer link, link Q, link, um, yes. and, uh, this great big, um, big data pulling out um, information from medical records and can track outcomes of patient groups. What do you think um, institutions such as ours and yours, um, <coughs> should we be adopting one of these big data things that's put out by ASCO, um, and so we can track our outcomes. Um, and maybe it could be a way to compare different institutions. I guess that could be a pitfall, but um, what do you think of that concept overall? Well, I think we should do a better job in tracking our outcomes, to tell the honest truth. Uh, and, and it's not just uh, cancer. Like, I mean, I individual institutions can do this. Cleveland Clinic has been monitoring their outcomes uh, by uh, uh, disease type and stage for a long period of time. I get their, you know, their annual report uh, every year, and I'm uh, unbelievably envious of the graphs that they that they can provide uh, that show what the outcomes are for patients of various different uh, diseases. Um, we actually do a, a a fairly pitiful job at Mount Sinai at the moment in tracking this. Uh, we have a, a major effort underway to. Um, uh, to get staging entered into our electronic re record uh, into a defined searchable field. Uh, we currently are, are at 8%. Now, that doesn't mean we don't put the stage uh, in our notes. The stage is in our notes. But in a defined field, we're only 8% uh, compliant. Uh, that's 100% that's improvement from where we were a year ago. Um, but it is, it is still a bit below where we need to be. So um, uh, we honestly can't track outcomes at all until we can actually track what stage patients are. And, and it's difficult to tie our cancer registry uh, information, which does uh, collect uh, stage information in a very methodical, time-intensive way, um, and it, which is always delayed right, for at least six months or sometimes 12 months. It's difficult to link that uh, to... Um, uh, to the uh, electronic health record 
and the long-term outcomes uh, of patients. So I think, I think that you're going back to, I'm just saying I think it's important. It's really important to do this. I think individual institutions could do this, uh, but most do it pretty poorly. Um, I think that the, the Cancer Link Initiative through, uh, through ASCO is a really uh, novel way uh, to try to get at some of this, uh, this information. Uh, it's, it's primarily uh, medical oncology based, so it's, it, it loses lots of patients with early stage uh, cancer um, uh, that, you know, that are originally diagnosed and may not be seen by a medical oncologist, um, which I think is a, is a deficiency of that, uh, of that initiative. And uh, it, uh, it tries to track what kind of uh, treatment patients are getting, but it, it's not focused directly like a clinical trial would be on what, what uh, defined treatments uh, people are getting. So there's lots of variability that will need to be, uh, be overcome uh, when, when looking at that. Um, and uh, hopefully it tracks some of the um, comorbidities that, uh, that affect uh, overall survival uh, uh, for patients. I'm not sure if the system's set up to do that at the moment. Uh, but without that, it's going to be difficult uh, uh, to, to really compare one institution to the next. So I think CancerLink is a good uh, effort, and it's a good start. Um, and uh, if they can get that to work with the uh, eight or so different electronic health records that they're trying to work with, uh, I think that would, that would be a, a big step forward. And it may be, may be refined in the future that other centers can use it. Yeah. You mentioned from the patient perspective, the patients are valuing uh, their sense of provider expertise. Yes. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on how to, that should be conveyed, especially if it's in an environment where we're trying to value shared decision making with the patient. Yes, so um, how to convey provider ex uh, uh, expertise. I'm not even sure patients know whether their providers are, are really expert or not uh, and, and how they how they come to that decision. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, there is, there is a component of, uh, uh, of marketing involved in, uh, for various centers in describing, you know, where their physicians come from, uh, whether they're involved in national organizations, where their training has been. I think that in an academic <coughs> center, uh, physicians that are involved in, uh, in uh, novel clinical trials often perceived at least to have uh, greater expertise than those who are practicing standard uh, uh, medicine. Um, so I think that's a difficult question, how, how exactly, uh, what, what I think might be a better question is, uh, and I don't think we've asked it specifically, is how a patient decides whether their physician has expertise or doesn't have expertise. It's one thing to ask if that's important, I guess that's an easy question. Everybody says, yes, of course, that's important. The harder question is, how would you actually define whether your physician has, has the appropriate expertise uh, or not? I, that's probably a much more difficult question. I'm not sure I know the answer. Okay, great, we're out of time. So thank you, everybody. Um, the code for the uh, CME credits is on the way out the door. Thank you.